Well, hello everyone at Peace Bible Church. This is Pastor Casey and I'm out here on my back patio on this snowy and icy afternoon because it gets very crowded in our, our little house when everyone is home and no one can go anywhere. And as much as I would love to be looking forward to gathering together for worship tomorrow, my hunch here is that that's just not likely to happen. So I thought I would record a version of the message that I was going to preach tomorrow so that we can keep pace in our series in the Gospel of Luke and so that even when we're not gathering together on this day that you can still be edified and built up by the Word of God. And as usual, if you have any questions about today's sermon, anything you're wondering about, want clarification on, or how to apply or live out any of this, you can text that in to 971-414-0290. And there's kind of a stiff breeze coming in here right now, and this might be a little more difficult than I had anticipated. But let's power through. We find ourselves today at the end of Luke chapter 2, and this is a very unique text of Scripture. This is uh, the only one of its kind that we have, in fact. This is the only place in the Bible where we learn anything about Jesus when he was a young boy. Of course, in Matthew and Luke, we have stories about Jesus' infancy, like when he was a baby. But other than that, all of the Gospels then cut to Jesus at around 30 years old when he's a grown man and he begins his public ministry. It's only Luke that cuts in at this point in our passage today to show us Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. And what we'll find in this passage is that Jesus here is, on the one hand, very extraordinary and that he's doing something that most 12-year-old boys would not do. But on the other hand, what Jesus is doing is quite ordinary in that it's not clearly supernatural, it's, it's not clearly miraculous. Uh, you know, beginning about a century after Jesus was born and, you know, continuing for some time after that, it became very popular uh, to write books about Jesus as a boy. And one well-known book is known as the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And even though it bears the name of the Apostle Thomas, it wasn't written by him. It was probably written around the year 200 AD or so. So that's quite a while after Jesus lived. And this book contained collected stories about Jesus between the ages of 5 and 12. And there's some good stories too. Like there's one in which Jesus as a boy is making clay sculptures of birds, but he's doing it on the Sabbath. And then so someone scolds him for doing it. So he turns the birds into real life birds and they fly away. Or there's another story where Jesus' brother James gets bitten on the hand by a snake. And so Jesus breathes on the wound in order to heal it. And when he does so, the snake also explodes, which is really cool. And there's another one where Mary sends Jesus to go get water, but then he sees that the pitcher that he was supposed to get the water in was broken. So he takes his outer garment, he lays it on the ground, he puts the water onto the garment, and then he picks it up and takes it back to his mother. It miraculously fills in a cloth bag. It doesn't leak or anything. Uh, we also see in these stories that Jesus can be a bit savage. Like there's a couple instances of him cursing other kids and they end up dying. But this book, like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas and other books like it, are full of miracles and legends that sprang up over time. And these authors thought that to show that Jesus was amazing, he had to be doing amazing and miraculous things as a kid. Like, you know, in the old Superman movie when the little boy Superman lifts up that farm truck uh, under his own strength. But we see that Luke's account is, is nothing like 
those ones. Jesus doesn't do anything particularly out of the ordinary in this story, other than showing a remarkably close relationship with God and a growing awareness of his identity as the Son of God. But for the most part, in our reading today, Jesus is shown to be a real human boy. And this morning, we're going to look at three main points as we walk through this passage. The first, we'll look at Jesus's humanity, that he really was truly human. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus's deity, that he was the son of God in a unique and divine sense. And third, we'll look at Jesus's parents' difficulty in understanding that and how we can often, I think, identify with the experience of Joseph and Mary in this passage. But before we do that, let's read the passage in full. This will pick up right after Jesus' parents leave Jerusalem with the baby Jesus, which we discussed last week when they came and brought Jesus to the temple. They leave, and we read this, beginning in Luke 2.39, uh, and I will go down to verse 52. It's hard to turn my Bible pages with gloves. Luke 2.39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we have here again a very unique passage and we see it beginning and ending like it's bookended with these statements about Jesus growing up. If you look at verse 40, it tells us four things about Jesus growing up, that he grew, that he became strong, that he became filled with wisdom, and that he experienced God's favor or like he grew in grace, he grew in knowing God. And then at the end, the end of this account, we read that Jesus increased in wisdom, that he increased in stature, that he increased in favor with God, and he increased in favor with people. So essentially, like these verses were saying that Jesus grew up as we would expect a boy to grow up. He got bigger as the years went by. He got smarter. He grew in how he related to other people, so like his social development, and he grew in his relationship with God. And I think that thinking about Jesus in this way might strike us as a little bit odd. I mean, I think that we can uh, readily understand and accept like the physical parts of Jesus's growth. We get that he was born as a baby and then we read that he was a man and we know that that didn't just happen all at once, that he gradually grew. Uh, But it's harder to think about like the mental aspects of Jesus's growth. We want to think that he always was thinking like as God in his mind. There's actually an ancient heresy 
that taught this. It's called Apollinarianism, taught by a teacher named Apollinarius back in the day. And he said that basically Jesus had a real human body and he grew as real human in a bodily sense, but that he always had this divine mind that was at work inside of his body. My theology teacher in college called this heresy that of God in a bod. Like he was the mind of God, but in the body of a man. But the church rightly condemned this as heresy because it discounts the humanity of Jesus. If Jesus didn't have a real human mind, then he wasn't really human. And if he wasn't really human, then he didn't have to learn and grow. But if Jesus was human, then he did have to learn and grow. And we see that today in our passage that Jesus learned and he grew. He grew in wisdom. He grew in his experience of God's favor. And we see in the main story today that he likely grew in his own understanding of his identity and his purpose in life. He manifests his identity as the Son of God in a way here that he likely hadn't before, which I think is why his mother is perplexed at it. Like he's coming into his own, and so she's seeing this too. And I know that we won't all, we're not ever going to understand all of what it was uh, for Jesus to live as a human. We can't understand anybody else's full experience other than our own, but we have to trust what the scriptures say, which is that Jesus was made like us in every way. And part of being made like us in every way includes having a growing human mind. And we see part of how that worked in the story here, too. What was Jesus doing when his parents found him? He was at the temple, and he wasn't just sitting around. He wasn't just, you know, goofing off like a 12-year-old boy might be expected to do. But he was sitting at the feet of the teachers and learning from them. And though he showed great understanding and he gave good answers himself, he nevertheless sat and he learned from other people, which is a remarkable thing to think about, that other people taught Jesus things about the Word of God. And this is actually the only time, I believe, that we see Jesus learning from the Jewish teachers. These are the people that later in Jesus' life would become his chief enemies. Perhaps even some of these men that he was sitting here learning from at the temple were those who, 20 years later, would be vehemently opposing him and seeking to put him to death. We don't know, but it's possible. But nevertheless, he learned from them. It reminds me of what Jesus later told his disciples in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3, when he said, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. We see here that Jesus had modeled this himself, even from his childhood, learning from the word of God and from those who knew it well. This was part of his humanity. So we see Jesus' humanity here in a number of ways. He's growing bigger. He's growing smarter. He's growing in self-awareness. He's becoming who he would be. Hebrews 5 speaks of Jesus having to grow in order to become our Savior, having to learn. It says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What that author is saying there is that Jesus had to learn and he had to grow and he had to become perfect. Now, he was, of course, already perfect in his divine nature, but Jesus was fully human as well. And as a human, he had to become 
perfect. He had to have a perfect childhood even in order to become the righteousness of God on our behalf. And Luke shows him doing just that, being the perfect child at 12 years old. Jesus' human perfection is a big part of Luke's gospel. At the end of Luke's gospel, when Jesus is crucified, we'll see a Roman centurion look up at the cross and say, surely this man was innocent. He never did what was wrong. He always did what was right. And that was true, and that extended even to Jesus' boyhood, that he grew up just like us in a lot of ways, only he was without sin. But because Jesus was human, that's why he had to grow up like us. But Jesus was also the unique Son of God. And that's the next point that I want to touch on here briefly. We see that in Jesus' response to his mother. You'll notice that Joseph and Mary, just like in last week's passage, they're referred to here as Jesus' parents. And it's not like Luke forgot all of a sudden that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Luke knew all that. But he also knew that Joseph had been placed in Jesus' life as his legitimate and true earthly father. And so he affirms that. He calls Joseph and Mary, without apology, the parents of Jesus. And so a side point here. I think that this truth, that God in his word calls Joseph and Mary both the parents of Jesus. He includes Joseph in that, even not being the biological father. This legitimizes in God's eyes different forms of parenthood. What I mean by that, step-parents, adoptive parents, other forms of non-biological parents. Maybe you take in somebody and raise them, uh, even though you don't even officially adopt them. Whatever the case may be, if you find yourself in a situation like that, your role is no less simply because you're not biologically related to your child. God affirms you even by implication in this passage. He calls Joseph one of the parents of Jesus. So Joseph is Jesus's real father, even if not his biological father. But in another sense, God was Jesus's father and Jesus knew this. So when Mary finds Jesus in the temple, she says in verse 48, your father and I have been searching for you. And Jesus, in his response, he says, verse 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And I kind of wonder if that, if that might have stung a little bit for Joseph. Like, hey, your father's looking for you. And he's like, I'm in my father's house. But it wasn't Jesus' intent to sting Joseph or to try to hurt him. We read in this passage also that Jesus was a submissive and respectful son to his earthly parents. But this was his reality. Jesus was intimately connected to God the Father in a unique way as the divine Son of God. And at that stage in human history and in divine history, the temple being the place where God's presence was intended to be manifested to his people in a special way, Jesus had to be there when he had opportunity to be there. Of course, he had to be in his father's house. And I think that's what he's saying. You might notice a footnote if you read in the ESV Bible, or maybe your translation reads a bit differently. Uh, Maybe it has Jesus saying and said, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? And the reason there's difference in translation there is because the Greek text here is a bit ambiguous. Like there's actually no noun in that phrase. Jesus just said, I had to be at or around my father's. But just like we'd say in English, I think the Greek here intends to be understood as his father's house. Like if I tell my wife, hey, I'm going over to my dad's, 
she understands that I mean that I'm going to my dad's house. And I don't even have to say the word house. And it's kind of the same thing here in the Greek. Jesus is saying, I had to be at my father's house. In Jewish culture, 12 years old was considered like just on the cusp of manhood. You could be affirmed as a man at 13. And Jesus, Jesus here on the cusp of manhood is beginning to draw those lines of separation between himself and his parents. He has to become his own person. At the appointed time, he had to leave his earthly parents to identify more closely with his heavenly father so that he could embark on his mission as our savior. And Jesus' parents don't really understand this. And we might wonder why. Because in our minds, in our minds, it was just a few weeks ago that we were looking in Luke and we saw Mary speaking with the angel Gabriel and hearing all these things about Jesus, that he'd be called the Son of God and conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we saw Mary talking with Elizabeth and Elizabeth calling her the mother of my Lord. And we saw Mary making her own great statements in the Magnificat in Luke 1 about all the great things that Jesus would do. And we heard from Simeon and Anna just recently. Uh, But remember, all of this in her experience was not just a few weeks ago. It had been 12 years. And during that time, Jesus had been growing in what probably looked like an ordinary human way. And so maybe it wasn't always so obvious to have these things at the forefront of her mind. And besides, understanding that Jesus is fully divine and fully human is a very difficult thing to grasp. It was going to take some time. And I think we should cut Mary some slack here because like, she was stressed out. When she finds Jesus, she says in verse 48, she said, your, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And this is a word that Luke uses only one other time in his gospel, this word for great distress. It's in chapter 16 in the parable, The Rich Man and Lazarus, when he describes the rich man's anguish in the fires of hell. And so Mary says, that's how you made us feel. So she's kind of losing it, like when she finds Jesus. And it had been three days, right? Three days until they found him. One day traveling away from Jerusalem and then realizing that Jesus wasn't with them. And then another day traveling all the way back to Jerusalem. So they probably went like 20 miles away and then 20 miles back. That takes two days. And then a third day looking all around Jerusalem until they finally find him. And that's stressful. Like just this week, I couldn't find my church debit card that has been issued to me through, through Peace Bible Church. And I looked everywhere I could think of in my house. I looked through my briefcase. I looked in drawers and other storage areas. And the time frame here was, was kind of similar to Mary and Joseph. Like I think I found my debit card this week on the third day of looking. And ironically, it was in my old church office at Bethany Baptist Church. I had left it there. So also, like Jesus, like Jesus' parents found him in a house of worship, I too found my my debit card in a house of worship. So go figure. But it's just a debit card, right? I can cancel it. I can get a new one. So no big deal. But if you've ever lost something and you're like beating yourself up for it, you just have to remember that Mary and Joseph lost the Son of God, for three days. And so when Mary finds him, like she's probably really relieved, but she's also a bit angry. Because we do this as people, right? When, when something bad happens, like we, we get angry sometimes. Or is that just me? 
Like I remember years ago, I was closing the, the tailgate door of our van and I hit my oldest daughter in the head when she was just a kid and it cracked her head open and we had to take her to the hospital to get her all uh, stapled back together. But my initial response when I hit her was more like anger. Like, what are you doing with your head there? You know, when I'm shutting the door and then, you know, you see all the bleeding and you just feel feel terrible but we tend when we're stressed sometimes to get to get mad at people so mary's been really stressed and so she gets mad at jesus and she's probably a bit embarrassed that she's lost him and so when jesus says why didn't you know where to find me i had to be here this is the only place i was going to be she's not at a point where she can understand all this but again we see mary if we look at verse 51 we see her exemplary response and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart she doesn't understand exactly who jesus is and what jesus is becoming but she's gonna keep at it she's gonna keep trying it may be hard to get jesus but she's not gonna stop trying and that's the point here neither should we stop trying we can look at this stuff we can read passages like this we can think about what it meant for jesus to become human and yet remain divine and we can lose ourselves in our inability to understand it all like there's a point where we have to receive this by faith. Like, okay, Jesus is human. Jesus is divine. He's perfectly made to be our Savior. And maybe we don't understand all that. But the good thing is, the good news is that our ability to understand Jesus is not what makes him our Savior. It's his ability to understand us. His willingness to become human. His experiencing all the things that we've experienced, yet doing it without sin. But sometimes we find ourselves in a place like Joseph and Mary in this passage. Joseph and Mary, we saw last week, we've seen it this week, they're very godly. They kept the laws of God, they did their best to obey God, and we see it this week. Every year, they went to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And no doubt they'd been there enjoying the festivities and drawing near to the Lord in worship and appreciating all that God had done for them. The Passover, of course, being when the Jewish people remembered the great work of salvation, that God had done for them in delivering their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. And so they shared in this feast and they worshiped the Lord and they enjoyed being together with friends and family. And then when they all headed back north to Nazareth in a caravan, they'd travel in these big groups to, to stay safe from bandits and robbers. They didn't realize that they had, in the midst of all this, completely lost sight of Jesus. And I think that's relatable. Have you ever felt like you have lost sight of Jesus? I know I have, and, and honestly, sometimes it's in similar circumstances to Joseph and Mary. When I've been very engaged in doing some work for the Lord, or in being among other people and enjoying myself, uh, and then you do all of these things, you get so busy and occupied with other things that you lose sight of the Lord. But I think there's an encouragement in this passage for us today, that when we lose sight of the Lord, what should we do? We should go to where he has told us that he will be. And when you do that, you will find him there. But where is that? There's a few options, in fact. I would say first, just like in this passage, go to the temple, just like the parents of Jesus did. But in this day and age, of course, I'm not talking about a physical temple per se. I'm talking about the church. The Apostle Peter wrote to the church in his first epistle, and he said this, 
to the church. He said, as you come to him, talking about Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying there to the church is that you are the temple. The temple is the place where God dwells. He says you are a spiritual house, a spiritual priesthood, all these things that the temple was. He says to the church, this is who you are. You are a temple of God. And Peter didn't make this up. He got it from Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 18, when defining the church, said to his disciples, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. God is found in the church. Right? Jesus is found in the church, not perfectly, not exclusively, but genuinely and truly you can find Christ among his people. Again, I'm not talking about a church building. I'm talking about a people. And this principle goes all the way back even to the Psalms when David wrote to God and he said to God, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's Psalm 22 uh, verse 3. God inhabits the praises of his people. He lives in them. We can find God when we go to be among his people. So that's one way. It's one place where Jesus has said that he will be. So we go to the church to find Jesus. We also find Christ in his word. Jesus said to the Jews in the Gospel of John, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And to two of Jesus' disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he showed them things throughout all the scriptures that concerned himself. So Jesus has told us that he can be found in the scriptures, in the word of God, if we will look for him there. Third, we find Christ also in prayer. We read in the scriptures that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, that he, and that he ascended into heaven, where he lives even now to make intercession for us as our high priest, where he prays for us before we ever begin praying through him. But when we do pray to God, our prayers mingle together with Christ's prayers on our behalf and the prayers of the Holy Spirit, and we are brought into fellowship with Christ through that. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. So we find Christ also through praying. And when we do that, he prays with us and he brings our request to the Father and we're drawn into fellowship with him. And so I'm sure there are more answers to the question of where to find Jesus, but it's getting really cold out here. I don't know if you can hear uh, all that falling on the roof and stuff. It's that like, it's not even like snow. It's just like raining ice. I'm pretty sure uh, we're, we're canceling tomorrow. But so that's all the answers I'm going to say right now. Uh, I wanted to toss in those Sunday school answers. Like, where do you find Jesus? Well, what did I say? The church, the Bible, prayer. Uh, because when we can't seem to find Jesus, when we feel like we've lost sight of Jesus, we often ignore those obvious answers, right? We don't feel like worshiping or reading our Bibles or praying, but we should do those things anyway because that is where we will find Jesus because he has told us that's where we will find him. And he'll say to us when we do those things and we find him there, he'll say to us just like he said to his mother, didn't you know where to find me? 
I've been just where I've always said I would be, where I've always shown that I will be. And he won't say that to you accusingly. He won't say that to you judgmentally. He'll say that to you lovingly, inviting you back into his presence again and again because he loves us, because he died for us, because he offers us forgiveness again and again and again. So because Jesus is human, as we saw in our passage today, he understands us. And because Jesus is the divine Son of God, as we also saw, he's able to save us. And even though we, like Joseph and Mary, are often unable to understand these things and to live actively in light of them, we will always find Jesus in his Father's house in heaven. We will always find Jesus about his Father's business among his people and through his word. And he always invites us back to meet him there. So I encourage you today, wherever you find yourself, if you feel like Jesus has been out of sight for you for some time, don't neglect the places where he's told you he will be. You'll find him among his people in the church. You'll find him in his word. You will find him in praying to God from a sincere heart. And Jesus will always be there because that's who he is. Let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that whenever we have lost sight of him and we need to find him, we know just where to do so. You've given us the means by which we can find Jesus through your church, through your word, through your people. God, he is always with you and he is always among his people. And God, so we pray that we would continually look to Jesus in the places where he said he will be found. And though it may be difficult to understand all the intricacies of Jesus being human and divine, we receive that by faith, that that's who he was in order to become our perfect Savior, that he might live a righteous life on our behalf, that he might die a sinner's death in our place, and that he might raise from the dead and ascend to heaven to always intercede for us. And we thank you that